Uh, this morning, I always feel this way when we come to an end of a book or an end of a study. I feel like I'm saying goodbye to a good friend. I feel that way with the book of Ephesians. It's been a tremendous book. I, I, I pray that it's been a blessing for you. I want to say I, I personally have learned quite a bit from the book of Ephesians and some things I already knew, but I, I believe that the book of Ephesians, studying it in detail, uh, brought those out in a greater and clearer way, and I'm praying a more permanent way. Just one of the things uh, I was just thinking about the other day is that um, we often sign our letters with the phrase, in Christ, as believers to other believers, we say, in Christ, Daryl, or, or whatever. And I used to do that for many, many years. And then, and then there came a time when I just thought, that, you know, it's probably just a cliche at this point. So, you know, for others or maybe for myself. So I, I started using other phrases, which is fine, which is fine. But after getting back into the book of Ephesians and realizing that what that phrase in Christ means, which it means that we are in Christ and all that Christ has as far as the riches in Christ that he's sharing with us in inheritance, we have in him. In fact, I'm going to turn there and probably just for the rest of my life always reference this verse. But Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, which I believe is indeed the key verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He wasn't just putting that in there to put an end to a letter. That in Christ is the idea of all that we are positionally. Well, I wasn't really sure if I was going to do this or not, but I will. All right, so when we take Greek class, you don't have to be OCD, but it helps. Here is a list and a chart of all of the prepositions. Now, we have prepositions in the English language. But basically, you came into the church. As soon as church is over, you're going to go outside the church. And, of course, there are other prepositions. But for the Greek, this is what you have to learn. All the arrows. You have a preposition that means over. You have a preposition that means under. You have a preposition, dia, that means through, from outside, through, and then, uh, or inside, then outside. You have one that goes inside and stops on the inside. You have one that's on the inside and just goes outside. Now, again, it's not because they're OCD. It's because of the great detail of this language. You have one that goes toward the circle. You have one that's alongside of the circle. Uh, I could go on, but I won't. But the one that we're looking at is the one that's inside the circle, in Christ. And it refers to our positional standing of all the riches that we have. So all that's in that circle, besides Christ and us, are all the riches that we have. And they're called spiritual blessings. They're in heavenly places, so they are secure. You're not going to go to heaven and take those away from God. And they're found in Christ. Needless to say, if I write a letter, I have no problem closing with the phrase in Christ. And I probably should put 
parentheses, oh, and if you don't know what this is, ask me. Ask me about it. Be more than happy to tell you. Anyway, there's been many, many other things that has been just so helpful, and we'll talk about those as we conclude on this final sermon. Now, the sermon is entitled Benediction and Conclusion. So pretty simple, isn't it? But I want to say a benediction is the closing remarks, uh, especially of that time period when they would write an epistle or a letter. Uh, And I suppose they were mundane in a sense, but with Paul, they are never mundane. They are theological and highly applicable. And so we're going to see some of that today. And so what we have, I need to get away from those prepositions there. Okay, what we're going to look at today is the benediction of peace, the benediction of love, the benediction of grace, the conclusion and summary, the conclusion and challenge, and then concluding thoughts. Let's once again pick up Ephesians chapter 6, verses 23 and 24. It says, peace be to the brethren and love with faith or in the midst of faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Let's pray. Father, your wisdom is beyond measure, that you would not only save us, but then you would give us your word that we would be able to study, know salvation, and also be able to grow and mature. I think this letter is to one of the most mature groups of the New Testament, Um, and yet, Lord, we... We know that they weren't perfect, but these were lofty things that we learned through here, but there were also practical things. The doctrine in the first part leads us to the duty in the second part. Father, I know I can't bring it all together in one sermon, but you can, and I ask you to do that today and to challenge us, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as it begins with peace to the brethren, the idea is that he began with peace and grace in verse 2, chapter 1, and he ends with grace and peace. This is the normal way that Paul has done it and other apostles. But again, there's much more. What does peace mean to Paul? What did he mean when he said peace to you, to the brethren? Well, I want to look at, first of all, a few scriptures that talk about what peace means. And then I want to just go through some of the the verses in Ephesians that have peace in them. Now, we obviously cannot look up all of the scriptures for all of them. So I'm going to try to pick and choose one of the ones that I think are very pertinent, important, and ones that are liked by me. The first thing that I want to say about peace, and we say it every time, and we ought to say it every time, 
And that is peace only comes, that's peace with God, only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, you may be peaceable if you're not a believer. You may think you have peace, but you don't have peace with God. Turn with me quickly to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, where we learn, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is reconciliation. Peace is redemption. The problem is, is that we're sinners. God cannot fellowship with sin. There is a separation. There is no peace. And by the way, when it, the Bible talks about unbelievers, they're not peaceful toward God. They don't like when you talk to them about God. They don't like when you ask them about, well, if you were to die tonight, where would you spend eternity? They don't like those questions. And so there's actually an enmity there. But you have peace with God when you trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. We also talk about the peace of God, which we have in Christ, which comes through prayer. When we go to the book of Ephesians, if you remember many, many times, the idea of peace in the book of Ephesians was between Jew and Gentile. So the Jews, Christ came from the Jews. Many of the promises were to the Jewish people. But the Gentiles, we're dogs. And if you're a southern Gentile, three syllables, da Okay, and that's, that's, that was literally how Gentiles were viewed. They were viewed without God, without hope. And in this, we were without God and were without hope. But Christ, when he died on the cross, all that come to him, whether Jew or Gentile, are saved. And we see this in the book of Ephesians, that Christ broke down the barrier wall. So regardless of ethnicity, background, status or whatever all who come to Christ are in one body of Christ also two one of the verses in Ephesians chapter 2 talked about gentiles being far off far away and the idea there is for emphasis the idea there is that we we weren't of the household of God the Jewish people were now that didn't mean that they were all saved they too had a place their personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where the problem lies. But we who were Gentiles were far off away from the promises, but because of Christ, trusting him as our savior, we've been brought near. We've been brought near into a relationship. And then also too, you remember, it talked about a bond of peace that we ought to have as believers, even in a church. In fact, that was our theme last year. I'll ask you to turn there. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, as we're talking about peace. So I could have just said peace is just a feel-good feeling. Uh, You're not disturbed by anything, but that wouldn't be biblical, nor do I think that would really be true. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, we are told to be diligent, doesn't happen by itself necessarily. And Satan, with his spiritual warfare, will try to disrupt a unity within a body of believers. 
being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I won't do a sermon on that because we've spent many sermons on that when we had that as our theme. But this is something that we want to remember. And and by the way, a lot of these things, as I bring them up, I want us to remember. I don't want us to forget. I want to remind us. We talked about peace when we talked about the armor of God. How about having our feet shod with the gospel of peace? And then even the way that we treat all men, we should treat them with peace, especially those who are of the household of God. That's what it tells us in Galatians as well. It says, so then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of God. We are the family. And so he goes from a benediction of peace, and it's a benediction is kind of like a prayer. A benediction is also an admonition while it's included in the closing remarks. And so this is what he desires for us. The peace that's in Christ. The peace that carries on in the the unity of the bond of peace. And then he comes to the benediction of love. And I would have to say that love is a strong underlying theme in the book of Ephesians. Probably many books, if not all. I think the idea is, as we get used to the word love, oh, there it is again, love one another. But as I come to the conclusion of his benediction, and he talks about love twice, I think love for the brethren as well as love for the Lord Jesus Christ, you you see that it's an underlying theme. And of course, this is the word agape, which is the self-sacrificial love, the love that God demonstrated when he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. Well, it says, you go through these, it says in Ephesians chapter 1, that out of love he predestined us to come to Christ. That's his love and his mercy. We also find out that because of that mercy, It's not just mercy, but it's also love, love that spurred that mercy on, that he saved us even when we were spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, you remember that? We're spiritually dead. What does that mean? Well, we're alive, but our, our life toward God is dead. We have nothing there. There's nothing there. We don't seek God. We don't serve God. We don't understand. We're dead spiritually. That's how everyone is until they come to Christ, and we find out that this is through the Lord's mercy. Here's one that I wanted to bring up in light of Lizzie and Levi's wedding in Ephesians chapter 5. You remember that? It gave us the model for uh, marriage, the husband and the wife. And what we find out is that the husband and the wife are actually the model of the reality of Christ and the church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, it's important for the husbands and the wives to have this love. But this is ultimately a picture, the reality, the eternal picture will be Christ and his bride, that love. I have to just share something. So yesterday, talking to Levi's father, he reminded me about an incident. 
And the incident happened when a long time ago when we had the wedding of Luke and Krissa here, if you remember that. Well, while we were having the ceremony, one of the young men just fainted. And that, and that had never happened to me before, just fainted. Uh, but, but uh, you know, uh, so people <laughs> picked him up and revived him. Well, his father told me, he said, that was Levi. I said, you're kidding, that was Levi. So, so both his father and I say, Levi, do not lock your knees while you're up there saying your vows. And then I said, but if you do, don't worry, we'll remember it the rest of your life. <laughs> But anyway, he did fine, a beautiful wedding. And, um, you know, you think of that wedding, these glo- the, the, the glorious gifts that God gives us. But according to Paul, it's a great mystery. Not getting married. The great mystery is Christ and his bride. And so you always remember that from the book of Ephesians. We're to have love for all the saints, love one another. We're to be grounded in love, Ephesians 3.17, grounded in love. So that means love is ground into everything, into our ministry, into our relationships, uh, into everything. And then I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. Because the benediction is love to you, love, that you would have love. Love for God and love for one another. Well, why do we have love for the Lord. Well, there are several reasons. One of them is because we love him because he loved us. He first loved us. He initiated that love. He saved us, gave us this Holy Spirit that pours out love in our hearts. He gives us, given us all of these great spiritual blessings and riches that we, we just love him and adore him more. But talking about his love, how can we ever forget Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, in Paul's prayer that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So his prayer is that we would understand what is, we're unable to understand fully, fully to comprehend all of it. But we are able to comprehend it and grow in that comprehension. And this is one of the reasons why we love him, because of the great love that we see. And I, I, I pray that we, we take that away from the book of Ephesians, that we always have this this knowledge of his love for us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So when you're going through difficult times, when you're going through trials in your life, when other individuals maybe of your family or within your church are struggling, you can encourage them with these things. You know, I get it. You know, sometimes we just need to listen to them and they just need to talk. But eventually we need to bring them back to the word of God. The word of the Lord endures forever and it will certainly encourage believers today. And this is what Paul prayed for us to do, to be able to comprehend the depth of love. And I believe it increases our love for him. Ephesians 4.2 talks about that we would show tolerance and love one another. Now, this is not tolerance for sin, okay? We're not on that road. This is a tolerance for the peculiarities of one another. 
This is the, this is the idea where even Scripture tells us to put up with things because of love. By the way, don't ever think you're the only one putting up with things. Other people are putting up with things in your life too. So as we do this together, love is the emphasis and it is the unity of the bond of peace. And then we build up the body. And how do you think Paul says we do that? We build up the body of Christ with love. With love. We're not taskmasters, drill sergeants. We're disciples of Jesus Christ, who he himself said, that is the mark that you are my disciple if you love one another, if you love them as I have loved you. And so this is what we do. So love is this major thing. And this is his benediction, love to you, love through the Holy Spirit, love because of what Christ did. And then you would extend that love to Christ and to others. Now, it is interesting that in this, he does say, and love with faith. Uh, He could be asking that we would grow in our faith. We certainly need to do that. But I think when you look at one of the prepositions in Greek, mata, it means in the midst of, in the midst of. So this could be translated, and love in the midst of faith. Now, what would that mean? Well, to me, that means not just love, gushy love, worldly love, but love in the midst of genuine faith, love in the midst of salvation, love in the midst of true people who know the Lord, and with that faith in the Lord, this is why they love. It's Christian love which is not known by the world, is not exemplified by the world. Now, the world may do heroic things, and I'm glad for it. Like, like the, the 9-11 situation, and people went into the tower and sacrificed their lives. That's, I mean, that's great and heroic, but this is even greater than that. This is, the, this is the agape love through this genuine faith. It's a, it's a love that forgives because of genuine faith. It's a love that seeks the betterment of another, looks in the interests of another because of genuine faith. And then Paul talks about faith throughout this epistle. And I want to remind us of a a number of things, but the one that stands out in my mind is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And you hear that quoted so often, especially if you're thinking about evangelism, you're thinking about evangelism explosion. But it is one of the greatest verses to understand that salvation is by faith alone. Not faith plus works, not faith plus an act, but faith alone in Christ alone. Turn with me to the very familiar verses Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, For by grace, so God is involved. He is directly involved. He is sovereignly involved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And he's going to go on to say that it's faith alone. This is so important because there are so many denominations out there that disqualify themselves for salvation because they add works. A work is something that you add to your faith to say, this is what saves me. Whether it's giving money or doing good deeds or being baptized, all of these things when you say, oh yes, I can add this and this is what procures my salvation. That's wrong. Look at what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. And so saving faith is faith alone in Christ alone. Now, after that, we grow. After that, we we do get baptized. After that, we do all these things. But for salvation itself, clearly, clearly the gospel is very clear. What did Paul say to the Philippian jailer when the doors of the prison were opened and he was afraid the people were going to escape and he would lose his life? What must we do to be saved? What must we do to get all these prisoners back in is what I think he was saying when he said it. And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe, not believe and something else. Believe faith alone in Christ alone. And we see so many times in the New Testament, just believe, 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 believe. What do you take away from that? That is believe. Not believe plus something else. How about John? The very end of the book of John. When he says these things in the book of John, the great gospel, and we often ask new believers or someone who wants to know about salvation, we ask them to to read the, the gospel of John very good. But these have been written. He tells us why he wrote it. Why did you write the book, your gospel, John? But these have been written so that you may believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you have life in his name. The idea of Jesus being the Christ, he was the sent one, the one that came to die on the cross for our sins, Isaiah 53. The Son of God, that he wasn't a mere man, he was the God-man, the Son of God, God the Son who added humanity to his deity. As you believe that he died on the cross for your sins and and your trust is in what he did, not what he did and you can also do, which is nothing according to Isaiah, but a filthy rag. That's what he says about our righteousness. The moment that you trust Christ with faith alone, in Christ alone, you are saved. And it's Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9, that so many over the generations have gone to to declare this true biblical salvation. He talks about faith in many other places too. He talks about that there's access for the believer to the Father through faith in Christ. It says that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. So, We know that not only the Holy Spirit dwells in the believer, but also Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory by faith. I don't feel him. I don't, you know, I I don't have any kind of warm fuzzies or anything, but I know by faith because the word of God says it. And it doesn't even matter if I'm having a bad day or even there's sin at times in our lives. We sin, doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter. It's a fact. Count a fact as a fact. That is faith, a, a precious faith. And what we're all trying to do as believers is attain to the unity of faith. So we grow in faith, and I think some of that refers to doctrine. Uh, it's, it's the Christian faith, the Christian doctrine. I think it means that as well. And then the last one I want to remind us of, not too long ago, we were just told with the armor of God to take up the shield of faith with which we are able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So when Paul writes this, he is not dismissing what he has previously written in the last six chapters. What does peace mean to Paul? Well, go through the book of Ephesians. And then you could do a greater study. What, what does it mean when you go through other books of the Bible? You're getting a biblical definition, a biblical understanding. And so I want to revisit this verse again. There's a, another gem or two in here. So look at this as we look at verse 23. It says, Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from, now watch, watch who it's from, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First thought. First thought is, these things come from God. God is the source of these things. If you want these things in your life, you have to come to Christ because they can only come from God. But if you also notice, this is a description of the deity of Jesus Christ. Because if it can only come from God, and Jesus Christ is described here that it comes from him, therefore Jesus Christ is God. He's the Son of God. God the Son. He's deity. And if he's deity, it doesn't mean that he was created. Some false teaching out there that Jesus Christ was the first created being, and that's what makes him the Son of God. No, what makes him the Son of God is that he's God the Son, and he's he's eternal, just like the Father and just like the Spirit. And so here, even in the very end, Paul once again, just because I think he breathes doctrine, talking about the truth that Jesus Christ is also the source of peace, love, and faith because he's God, God the Son. Well, let's move on. I want to talk about the benediction of grace, and we could talk about grace a lot. Yesterday, we were at the Wright Baptist Church. I always thought that would be a wonderful city to have a Bible church our Bible church, because it would be the right Bible church. But then we said, you know what? Grace isn't so bad either. You know, grace, grace, the Bible church, what a great concept this is. And Paul understands it. And Paul has explained grace to us. And so he says, grace be with all those. And then we'll finish that in just a moment. But grace to believers. It's a, it's a prayer. It's a, it's a, uh, a desire for believers to grow in grace. I think also an admonition. What is grace? Well, grace is God's favor towards those who do not deserve it. Stretch it out a little bit. Grace is God's favor to those who have come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and don't deserve it. We deserve to go to hell. Those who don't trust Christ will go to hell. 
But if we trust Christ, we have received grace. For by grace, through faith, you are saved. And by the way, I, I would just implore you, since this book is such a great book and it talks about salvation, if there's anyone here that has never trusted Christ as Savior, alone, faith alone in Christ alone, I would implore you. I would implore you to come to Christ. I would implore you to talk to somebody about it. If you want to talk about it, go right ahead. But every person needs to know the Lord Jesus Christ as, as his Savior. Or this book means nothing. All of the spiritual blessings mean nothing because you don't have them. Only those in Christ have them. And we do we, is there any that deserve them? No, that's what grace is. Grace is realizing you don't deserve it. But his goodness and mercy and love has given it to us. And so, you want to talk about grace in the book of Ephesians? All right, let's do that. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. You know what? If the book of Ephesians only had this verse in it, it would be well worth it. So we learn about grace and salvation. We learn about grace and helping us grow in the Christian life. But what about in the future? What about in heaven? Watch this. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us. Here it is, in Christ Jesus. And so the idea is is that that's what God does. God is, God is glorified in his grace in saving sinners of whom I am the chief. Sorry, Lou. <laughs> he saves sinners. That's what his grace is. And we haven't seen anything yet. Heaven will be the, the, uh, the Shekinah glory of the explanation of the riches of his grace. We only understand it in part. We will understand it fully. And the riches, by the way, the riches are those things that he just lavishes on us in Christ. We'll talk a little bit about those riches. And it's toward us who believe, who are in Christ. That's the positional truth. That's that circle with the dot in the middle and you there. So that in ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So there you have it, grace, grace upon grace. Grace is also mentioned in the book of Ephesians when it comes to spiritual gifts. They're grace gifts. They're, they're not a talent. They're a grace gift because you can now do something that you couldn't do before. It's given to you by God's grace, and it builds up the body of Christ. That's why spiritual gifts are called gifts of grace, Ephesians 4, 7. And then finally, even our behavior is going to or should include grace. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. Are you edifying one another? According to the need of the moment, it may change. They're struggling with one thing and then struggling with another so that it will give grace to those who hear. What does that mean, grace to those who hear? It doesn't mean that it'll just be nice and pretty, although it ought to be loving, but it will give grace. They will be able to grow with the biblical counsel that you're giving them that's coming out of your mouth rather than any unwholesome word or any unbiblical word. That is what we see with grace. 
Now, look at the rest of the phrase because this is important. Verse 24, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Grace here in this benediction is connected with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to explain this. When when Paul talks with this language about those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, he is talking about believers. That's another description of a believer. The same thing in the book of Romans. Uh, I'll just quickly turn there. When he says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Now, that's not, I'm not saying that we're not supposed to love God, but that's a description of a believer. That's the description of the believer. Are you to grow in your love of God? Yes. Is the love of God to, to, uh, to grow dim? No, it should not. But he is speaking about believers. So don't get the misconception that you have to have some level of love that determines whether you're going to make it into heaven or not. Well, now we're getting back to works. But realize that you ought to love God. You have a a lot to love God for, what he's done for us in salvation, and the Holy Spirit is pouring out his love in our hearts. But this is a description of believers. So he's, 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 by the way, the epistle is to believers. And grace to all those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that is kind of an evidence of that your one's salvation. But I'm really interested in this last phrase. Look at what he says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24. With all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Now, incorruptible means subject to decay and death. That's not what it's talking about here. Here it's figurative. It means an incorruptible love is a, an undying love, a love that doesn't die, it doesn't wane, it doesn't decrease, it doesn't dim. And that should be a description of all believers. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this. So put your finger right there. Okay, we're, we're not done with that. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. I want to move now to my conclusion, and then this will be part of my challenge when we come back to this verse. But what about the conclusion and the summary? So let's try to put it all together. The first thing that I want to say is, and you know it, but let's put it together. Paul is writing from prison. Now, first of all, We've, I've said it at the men's breakfast on Saturday. I've said it last week. I've said it before. Okay, if you're in prison, what kind of a letter are you writing? Get me out of here. Contact a good lawyer. This all went wrong. It's not my fault. And first of all, Paul gives a benediction like this. Peace, grace, love, and faith to you. That's because last week we saw the fact that, why was he writing this letter in the first place? Because he wanted the Ephesians not to worry about him and his condition. Who does that? You're you're concerned about those outside of prison while you're in prison? You go to the book of Philippians, which we did last week, and we saw the fact that 
he's, he's wants to know about them and how they're doing. That's why we're sending Timothy to them because he's concerned for their welfare. Paul, do you not know that you're in prison? Oh, yes, he does. But because he is in Christ, because of all of these things that we read about in the book of Ephesians, he is far above that. Not that he doesn't struggle with it, not that he doesn't sin, not that he's perfect, but I'm telling you what, this is about as spiritual as I've ever seen or ever known. But I want to say something else. So if you were going to write something from prison, even to encourage someone else, would you write about the 33 positional truths that you received the moment you received Christ? That's what he did. That's what the first part of Ephesians is about. All of these spiritual blessings. You know what it says there in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, past tense, blessed us with every, not some, not waiting for any second or third blessing, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then he proceeds to give those spiritual blessings. They are positional truths. This is what he writes to encourage them. Now, let me just read here for a moment. Let me just read what Lewis Berry Schaefer says about these. And by the way, in his theology, he came up with 33 of these. There may be more, um, depending on how you categorize them. But this is, what is a positional truth? What is a, a positional standing? What is a spiritual blessing that you receive the moment you trust Christ? Now, you may be just saying, all I knew was God is holy. I'm a sinner. Christ died for my sins. If I trust him, I have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's exactly right. And he saved you. But there is so much more. All of the riches of Christ are involved. Now that you are in the center of the circle in Christ, here's what these spiritual blessings and positional truths are. Lewis Berry Schaefer writes, there are 33 stupendous works of God, which together comprise the salvation of a soul. They are wrought of God. They're not wrought by us. We don't earn them. We don't do them. We don't work on them. We don't add, change, or delete them. They're wrought of God. They are wrought instantaneously. They are wrought simultaneously. They are grounded on the merit of Christ, and being grounded on the merit of Christ are eternal. If they were grounded on our work, then then there'd be question, but they're grounded on the work of Christ. All of these, all of these are these things. And Paul is encouraging these believers. Why do you think he wrote this? Is it that he had extra papyrus to write on? Hey, we just got a fresh new batch of ink. Let's let's write the 33 uh, positional truths in the book of Ephesians. It was to encourage them to know who they are in Christ. You know, the new age movement and all of that, they give you audios to listen to and it tells you who you are or who you think you are or who you're supposed to be by listening to these and how beautiful a person you are, how good a person you are, um, how you could do all things, how you are creative, and how you yourself are the creator. You're the creator. Well, every one of those is false biblically. Outside of Christ. But in Christ... These are all the things that we are. 
that he gives to us the moment of salvation. I don't know if I have enough time to read them all. I I certainly don't have time to go through them. Yesterday at the men's breakfast, I picked a few out and we went through some of those. Probably don't have a whole lot of time, so I'm not going to do that. But I'll tell you what, I did put a sheet back there with those on. If if you're interested in that study, I have the verses that show them from the book of Ephesians and the verses that show them from other references in the New Testament about your positional truths. Did you know that as a believer, this is who you are. You are chosen by God, redeemed, reconciled. You have the propitiation or satisfaction of God. Forgiveness, the sinful nature has been judged. You're free from the law. You have new birth. You've been adopted as sons. Serves you right as a child of the king. You are acceptable to God. You have been justified. You have been made near to God. You've been delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of the Son. He did this, did it the moment that you placed your faith in him in Christ. You are founded on Christ. You are a gift to Christ. I've got scripture for that. You are spiritually circumcised in Christ. You are a partaker of the holy and royal priesthood. Chosen generation, holy nation, peculiar people. Of course, we knew that. We were peculiar before. You are a heavenly citizen. Next time they take a census, where are you from? Heaven. That's my citizenship. That's what he says. It's a, it's a, it's a certain thing. It's already done with God. In God's mind, you are not a citizen of Gillette, Wyoming, Spiritually speaking, you are a citizen of heaven. You are of the family of God. That's what makes us a family. You are in the fellowship of the saints. You are seated in the heavenlies. Your position in Christ is you are seated in the heavenlies. And why I love this is because usually when someone is discouraged and we're trying to minister to them, we say, keep looking up. You know what the spiritual thing is? Keep looking down. You're already positionally in the heavenlies, seated with Christ. You have access to God. You are objects or targets of grace. Okay. You are the Father's inheritance in the saints. That's, that's right. It's his inheritance, which we would think maybe he got the short end of the stick. But the idea there is we are his to give to the son as a bride. We are co-heirs with Christ. So now we see that circle again, and we are co-heirs with Christ. Everything that is in Christ, in that circle, we are co-heirs with. We are light in the Lord. We are united to the Trinity. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are complete in Christ. We are already glorified according to Romans chapter 8, verse 30. In God's mind, it's already a done deal. And she says we're glorified. And finally, and of course, again, we are the possessor of every spiritual blessing. This is what Paul encouraged the Ephesians with. Now, I was wondering the other day, I wonder if... Now, he's an inspired writer, so we know that he got it from the Holy Spirit. There's no doubt about that. But I wonder if while Paul was in prison, if there was a time of discouragement. He was not perfect. So... He probably prayed and probably thought, well, I will do a study in Scripture. I will think about something that encourages me. And he thinks about who he is in Christ. Because he may have been bothered who he was before he was in Christ, namely a murderer of the, the saints. 
And so, I don't know, it doesn't say that, and Paul's my hero, so, you know, if I find out he never got discouraged the day of my life, it won't hurt, hurt me a bit. But I'm sure he did. So, so I'm thinking to myself, here he's thinking about, here's a very difficult, traumatic time for the Ephesians and for himself. What is the counsel you give them? Quick, turn to your psychology book. No, sit on the psychology book so it gets you higher so you can read your Bible. Okay, this isn't psychology. This is the Bible and spiritual truths. The idea is is that it's who you are, no matter what you're going through, even if you've sinned, no matter where you are spiritually, this is who you are. And I want to also say is that just doesn't stay stagnant. Who you are positionally will have an effect on what you do. We'll see that in just a moment. So it just, you know, Paul doesn't ever just write anything for theology's sake. Paul is always about application. So when he wrote it in Philippians chapter 2 on the kenosis theory that you study in Bible college, what does it mean when it says that he emptied himself? You know, was it deity, part of deity? No, it wasn't his deity. It was his prerogatives. But why did Paul say that? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He is all about application. And so he gave all of these things in Ephesians to encourage them in the positional truths. And I would challenge us that we would think about this for our own lives, our own discouragement, and for the lives of other believers and and their discouragement, reminding them in a loving, gracious, biblical, precious way of who they are in Christ. And he who began a good work in you will continue it to the day of Jesus Christ. Well, another thought that I have, and I've got to watch my time, I do, I do watch my time. <laughs> I watch it go over and over. <laughs> um, but seriously, the other summary that we take from this book is the first three chapters were about doctrine. So it's not always what you do, but it sometimes is what you know, which affects what you do. So the first three chapters are about doctrine, And then the last three chapters were about application. I think that is a beautiful way to understand. When you have right doctrine, you are going to have right application. When do people take things out of context? And when do they do crazy things, quote unquote, for the Lord? When they take things the wrong way doctrinally. When they don't understand the text or doctrine. And so this is how we have it. And so... Just quickly, don't turn there. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, this is the transition now from the doctrinal part to the duty part, the behavior part. He says, therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? Therefore, because of what we've just learned in the last three chapters, I, the prisoner of the Lord, what are you going to say, Paul? You're in prison. Tell him you need Jerry Spence. I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And so we entitled this great epistle, The Believer's Spiritual Riches in Christ. First three chapters, The Believer's Spiritual Blessings. And the last section, chapters four through six, The Believer's Spiritual Behavior. And once again, It is who you are in Christ. 
your position should challenge your condition. I tell of the story that was heard about Alexander the Great and his army. And of course, one of the things that was not accepted in his army was, was AWOL or cowardice. And actually, it would be under the penalty of death. And one day after a battle, the guards brought a man up to him who was charged with cowardice. And Alexander said, what's your name? And he said, Alexander. And he looked at him and said, you either change your name or you change your behavior. Well, in somewhat of a similar way, you are a Christian, a Christian. You are of Christ. You are in Christ. You live through Christ. You are saved by Christ. And of course, you can't change your name, and I would never ask you to change your name as a Christian, but I will ask us all, myself included, first and foremost, change our behavior. And what is our behavior? All of these positional truths ought to be the things in our lives that come out that way. We ought to walk in a manner worthy of our spiritual blessings. And so these are some of the great lessons we learn. Now, I've got one more. Let's go back to verse 24. Paul writes again, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love, meaning undying love. I believe they love the Lord Jesus Christ. But what happens over time? Sometimes, maybe even many times, love for Christ decreases and diminishes. Doesn't go away completely, but diminishes. Some 30 to 35 years later, John, the Apostle John, from the Isle of Patmos, writes the words of Christ to the church of Ephesus. Now, there's a lot of things that they are commended for. They are commended for things like their deeds and their labor and their perseverance. Oh, how we need that in the church. They had no toleration for evil and evil men. Good, that's exactly right. We cannot become like the world. And this isn't to say that we don't share Christ with them, but we don't have toleration for sin. They had doctrinal discernment because they were able to discern false apostles. You're not an apostle of of Jesus Christ. And we're still doing that today, aren't we? They did not grow weary. You hear people, well, I've done it a long, long time. It's time for the younger generation to do it. And they had hatred for the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, who were they? Well, we're not exactly sure because nothing else is written about them except to say that maybe it was a, a pre-Gnostic group or, and or a group that was involved in both paganism and immorality, kind of like what you see in the Old Testament and how you would have these... Uh, temple prostitutes so that you could have communion with your God. And they, they hated that. They hated those deeds. And in all intents and purposes, we'd say, man, that's the church I want to attend. But there was one criticism. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, verse 4.
Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. From the church of Ephesus, some 30 to 35 years later, said, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think it's the love that they first had when they came to Christ. Do you remember that? You remember the, uh, the religious cartoon where you have the new convert, he's on fire for the Lord, but he needs to grow in knowledge. And then you have the older saint who's saying, slow down, sonny, slow down, because he walks slow, but he has knowledge. You know, you have that little... But, but the zeal that you have when you first come to Christ, and that's what it, it is in the Greek, it's the love that is first. The first kind of love. You know, that's something that you think of when couples get married. And you're married for a long time. And sad to say, that love may decrease or diminish. Well, if you come to my office for counseling, I'm just going to say to the wife, buy him a rifle. No, I won't. No, I won't. What I'm going to say is go back and remember what it was that drew you two together. Remember what it was that you loved about them. You remember how fervent love. I I, I shouldn't say this, but I remember one time my brother-in-law was not really a guy who's known for his emotion, but he came out years ago to go hunting, and he stayed with us, and he fell asleep on the couch with a picture of his fiance on his chest. I thought, man, that boy is smitten. Well, we asked his wife when we went back east, does he still sleep with your picture? No. <laughs> well, the, the point I'm trying to make is go back and think about those things and, and what it was to, to recapture that first love. The love has grown mundane with these Ephesians. They were doing the right things, but it wasn't necessarily the right motive. And I don't mean that they didn't love the Lord at all. But it was mundane, and and they they weren't necessarily doing the right things out of the right motive, which was out of a love for Christ. I don't think that's the problem here at Grace Bible, but it scares me that it could be. I don't necessarily think that's a problem with me, although it scares me even more. I just read something this morning from Charles Spurgeon when he gave this sermon on Revelation. He said, I've never preached a sermon where I've felt more condemned. And I agree with that. But there is none of us here who say we love Christ as we ought to love. And I think we even would say, I don't love Christ like I used to love him. That is moving into the area of leaving your first love. That's what happened some 35 years between what was written there to the church in Ephesus by Paul and what is written by the Apostle John from the island of Patmos to Ephesus. It it had waned a little bit. I don't know how much, but enough that Christ said, you need to straighten it out. You need to repent or I will remove your lampstand. In other words, your church will cease to exist. And then in verse 5, he gives the remedy quickly. He says, therefore, remember. Remember where you have fallen. And that's that idea of remembering what it was like in the beginning. And repent. Admit it's wrong. 
You know, I think there's probably room for repentance in everybody's life this morning. Mine also, maybe even especially. Lord, I don't love you as I ought to love you. Help me. I don't even love you, Lord, like I used to love you as far as the zeal. Maybe without the knowledge, but the zeal. And then after he says, repent, do the deeds you did at first. Quickly, so you're remembering your first love and the things that caused you to love Christ. When, when you first found out that your sins are forgiven because Christ died on the cross for your sins, hallelujah, what a glorious moment. And then to try to get involved, you want to do everything for the Lord. That's, that's all part of your first love and to get that back. And maybe there were times you were even brought to tears through what you're singing or through what someone says, when it hits you, how much he loves you and and what he has done for you. So remember, and then repent, which means if I've sinned, confess it. And then pursue loving him and pursuing that. And what about redo the initial deeds. Well, I think you do the same deeds. Maybe there's some things that you need to restart again. Or maybe there's things you just keep doing like you do. But I, 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 after being in the ministry all these years, there are times when I look at myself, I wonder if I'm just doing it on the motions, you know, out of, the, you know, out of uh, repeated, repeated, just doing the motions. Now, not that I don't enjoy that. Maybe I just, I, maybe I enjoy that. But I have to ask myself, am I really doing it for Christ? Am I really doing it because I love Christ? So redo the initial things, but this time do them from the heart. And that's the last lesson we learned from Ephesians, that even this great mature church, I think it's the most mature church in the early church period. Certainly the things that Paul writes to them are the most mature, the most in-depth. He does it to encourage them, but... You have got to think under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when the last verse says, grace be to all those who love the Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. And may that be our case from this book. So, in conclusion, remember. Remember to encourage yourself and other believers in the spiritual blessings and riches in Christ. Encourage one another in that. Remember your identification with Christ and your new nature. You know what the old nature is, but now you have the new nature. Remember that your marriage is a model of Christ and the bride, his bride, church, You're letting people know what it's going to be like in heaven by the way they see that you're marriage. Oh, there's going to be fighting in heaven? No. (laughs) Remember to keep your armor on. Keep it on. Don't take it off. Remember Christ's deep love for us, the breadth, the height, the depth, and the length, and of all, remember to keep your first love towards Christ and Christ as your first love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this powerful book.
of inspired scripture. Lord, thank you for the spiritual truths that we learn in the first three chapters. This is to encourage us of who we are in Christ, not who we were without Christ. And this is what our focus is on as we go forward for you, Lord, but it's also a challenge that we live those things. We live like the light of the Lord. We live like a heavenly citizen. We live like we're seated in the heavenlies. We live like we're forgiven and redeemed and reconciled, and we're certainly able to share that with others because we've experienced it to such a great degree. Father, we we ask then that you would never let us forget these things, always to remember these things. Help us to love you and that Christ would always be our first love with undying love. And it's in his name we pray, amen.